Welcome to the, Daniel, to the 2019 Daniel Patrick O'Connor Memorial Lecture. Uh, we're very happy to have you here today and to welcome our speaker. My name is Vanessa Munoz and I am a professor in the sociology department. I want us to begin by acknowledging the Ute people and all indigenous nations who are original inhabitants of this land those who were enslaved on this land, and all of those whose invisible labor affords us the comforts that we are enjoying right now. Dan O'Connor was a student at Colorado College in the fall of 1990 and winter of 1991. A committed social activist, he participated in student campus organizations concerned with environmental issues in ethnic communities, as well as other social justice struggles. He participated in the student protests against Battle Mountain Gold Stripe Mine and Cyanide Leach Mill in the foothills above the Chicano Land Grant community of San Luis, Colorado. He also participated in the Alternative Spring Break program of the College's Center for Community Service in Colorado's San Luis Valley. O'Connor was committed to workplace democracy, environmental justice, cultural diversity, and social inequality. The Daniel Patrick O'Connor Memorial Lectureship Endowed Fund is made possible through generous contributions from Margaret O'Connor, Michael and Kathy O'Connor, and their friends. The annual lectureship exists to promote the principles of scholarship, research, and volunteerism in the service of social justice. We want to thank the O'Connor family for their more than 20 years of support of uh, events like these. Each year, the sociology department hosts a lecture related to social justice through this uh, Daniel Patrick O'Connor Memorial Lectureship Fund. As a department, we are building our social justice initiatives, curriculum, and training, and we invite you to join us in this work. One upcoming opportunity is a two-day workshop with Rosa Clemente, our speaker today, and J. Love Calderon, entitled For Movements, Moments to Movements, The Power of Community Activism and Organizing. The workshop is co-sponsored by the O'Connor Memorial Lecture Fund, the Sociology Department, and the Butler Center. There are details in your program about this uh, student-oriented workshop. So that's happening on Saturday and Sunday. I apologize if I misspoke on the dates, but the information is in your uh, program. Saturday. Just Saturday, okay. Um, uh, our <laughs> Friday and Saturday, thank you. Uh, our speaker today, Rosa Alicia Calamente, is an organizer, political commentator, and independent journalist. An Afro-Puerto Rican born and raised in the Bronx, New York, she has dedicated her life to organizing, scholarship, and activism. Clemente is one of our generation's leading scholars on the issues of Afro-Latinx identity. She is the president and founder of Know Thyself Productions, which has produced seven major community activism tours and consults on issues such as hip-hop feminism, media justice, voter engagement among youth of color, third-party politics, United States political prisoners, and the right of Puerto Rico to become an independent nation free of United States colonial domination. She's a frequent um, guest on television, radio, and online media, as her opinions on critical current events are widely sought after. Her groundbreaking article, Who is Black?, published in 2001, was the catalyst for many discussions regarding black political and cultural identity in the Latinx community. She is also the creator of PR on the Map, 
um, which you had some preview of. And um, she's currently completing her PhD at the W.E.B. Du Bois Center at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Clemente was the first ever Afro-Latina woman to run for vice president of the United States in 2008 on the Green Party ticket. Yay. She and her running mate, Cynthia McKinney, were to this date the only woman of color ticket in American history. We are very excited to have you here today, Rosa. Welcome. So if everybody could just take a moment, I'm Love, hello, I'm going to see y'all on Friday Saturday. Just take a moment and just, if you want to close your eyes, you can. If you don't want to, you don't have to. But just take three deep breaths so that you can be really, really present for tonight's keynote. So breathing in through your nose and out through your mouth and in through your nose, out through your mouth. And your deepest breath yet, in through your nose, and out through your mouth. Thank you, and let's welcome Rosa. Thanks, Jay. Um, thank you, everybody, for being here tonight. After you have a baby, things happen. So anyone who has had one knows. <laughs> Let me get my breath, I was running. <laughs> so first and foremost, thank you to all the workers here tonight. I hope that the college is paying you a livable wage and providing health care for you and your families. And to the students, faculty, administrators, staff, and community, thank you for being here. Of course, I want to thank Eric and Paul for reaching out to me and Jay Love to not only be here for this lecture, which is an honor for me, but to be able to spend the next two days with people in this room and other people on really digging deep into the current political moment that we're in and how we survive it. I want to thank the O'Connor family because I know that Mr. O'Connor recently passed away. And I was reading a, a paragraph of his and he says, I knew that I wanted to change the world at least a little bit. I didn't believe that any political system could create a good society. Change has to come from the heart, not through the mind. So I'm very humbled to be asked to be this year's Daniel O'Connor lecturer. So I always like to start with quotes as a historian, it's very important for me. And France Fanon, one of the greatest minds of this century, the person that really made the world understand what colonialism and internalized colonialism does, as well as the architect for the Algerian revolution against the colonizing country of France, said, each generation must, out of relative obscurity, discover its mission, fulfill it, or betray it. Asada Shakur says, nobody in the world, nobody in history, has ever gotten their freedom by appealing to the moral sense of the people who were oppressing them. And I think that's very profound in this moment. Because 
if we're looking for any morality to come out of the executive branch of this government, we're already behind. There is no morality in any of them. Not when you put children in cages, there is no morality. And all of those that stay in his administration are complicit and consenting to the evil that's happening right now. And if we don't say it, and we don't name where we're going, which is to fascism, although many scholars of fascism have already said we're in the third phase of it, but Americans never think those things can happen here. Well, you know, you can ask Devon Bailey, who was murdered here recently, if that exists for some of us. And Bell Hooks says, education at its best is a profound human transaction called teaching and learning. It's not just about getting information or getting a job. Education is about healing and wholeness. It is about empowerment, liberation, transcendence, about renewing the vitality of life. It is about finding and claiming ourselves and our place in this world. And young people better claim it because where we're going, this world is not gonna exist in what, how it looked like for my generation with the climate catastrophe. That's not coming, it's here already. It's here. The Bahamas has been literally obliterated. It might not exist on a map right now. We don't know what's happening in South Carolina, but we for sure know that communities in Miami, in New York City, any community that lives in a coastal area, if you don't understand what happened in Hurricane Katrina in 2005, 14 years ago, what happened in Hurricane Katrina and the levee breach is happening three or four times a year now in this country. What else is happening all over the world with climate catastrophe? It will be island nations that suffer the most, like Puerto Rico did two years ago. And we have an administration that doctors maps because they tweeted about this current hurricane hitting Alabama, which was not true. So then he doctored a map, which is actually a federal violation, to change that and had a press conference in the Oval office telling us that the hurricane was hitting Alabama. See, that's the, the, the craziness, but also the wickedness of this administration. If we don't name it, if we don't deal with it, your generation's not gonna survive. Literally, you're not gonna survive because the planet's not gonna survive. We're already at one degrees, 1 1.5 is the tipping point. We see what's happening. So when people say, we need to give the administration a chance, maybe they'll change. What are we watching after two and a half years? I was in the same lecture hall the day after 45 was elected. The night before, Dr. Buckley, my homie Paul, picked us up, picked me up, and we were listening to the radio station, like this dude's about to be the president. And I had said to Paul, it's not surprising, because I live in upstate New York. People think New York is New York City. No, New York is a state. 
and there's eight million people that live in the state of New York. And once you cross a certain county called Rockland County, all of that is Republican territory. So I live in Albany, the capital, where there are three houses that fly Confederate flags on the street I live. So I fly a Black Lives Matter flag and a Puerto Rican flag, right? There are people in bars. There's a white supremacist group called the Proud Boys that was actually started in Albany, New York in a tattoo shop. And this is Albany, New York, right? This is not down south or what people think white nationalism or white supremacy is coming from. So if anyone wants to have some type of debate about this administration, I, would, I walk away. I don't have time to debate nonsense. I don't have time to debate what we know is happening. I don't have time to speak to someone's heart when they don't have a heart. You know, and, and being in, that room, in this room that night, the fear and the angst that many of the students were feeling was, you could feel it. You know, and now we're two and a half years, it seems like we've been in this for 20 years. It's two and a half years in, and 21 states have passed the most restrictive reproductive rights laws that we have ever seen. A Supreme Court justice that we know his politics, a potential another Supreme Court pick. But what people haven't been paying attention to in this administration is the amount of federal judges that they have appointed. Often we think at these macro levels and not the micro. And the picking of federal judges that are not Republican-leaning only, but right-wing-leaning, is how states are passing these anti-women reproductive laws, right? These heartbeat laws. So either we're going to fight, or we might as well just get in The Handmaid's Tale show on Hulu and just be part of that, because that's exactly what's happening. And people will say, that's crazy. Well, no, it's not, because this country has been here before, but the world has also been here before. And just as this country is going towards right-wing, nationalistic fervor, this is happening around the world. In Brazil, the president of Brazil has said he wants the Amazon to burn so that they can have more meat and cattle ranching and that what they're doing. He wants no help from the international government. He's also said that if his son was gay, he would kill his son. And he's one of the many right-wing presidents or prime ministers that are taking hold of governments all over the world. So as people within the United States borders, we can't not think internationally because when we suffer, the rest of the world suffers even more. When we put children in cages while this government is doing that here, there are hundreds of migrants dying every week trying to get to Italy, trying to cross the Mediterranean. Hundreds. The Palestinian people are under attack by a right-wing government. So we have to also expand our mind and what we think it is to be 
a human, but a citizen of the world. My story begins in the South Bronx in 1972. I did not grow up in a movement household. I did not grow up understanding politics and studying history. I did have a great sense of pride as a Puerto Rican, but I knew nothing about the history of my people, what happened to our nation. I did not know why we were made US citizens. I did not know we were a colony. I did not know of the freedom fighters for decades that were hunted, attacked, assassinated, sterilized, incarcerated for fighting for Puerto Rico to be free. I had to go to college to find out who I was. I had to take black studies classes, Puerto Rican studies classes, pan-African theory, rhetoric, black psychology, feminist studies that were taught by black women because even to this day, feminist studies really means white women and black and brown women always have to fight for our place in this space. I had to go to college to begin to understand why I had not learned anything political or historical, not only about Puerto Ricans, but African Americans, Native American, Asian, and other Afro-Latinx people. And I grew up in New York. In my sophomore year, I went to a meeting of the Albany State University Black Alliance, ASUBA. And as Drake says, I started from the bottom to get to the top. That top was beginning to know and understand who I truly was and begin to confront all the internalization of white being right, brown stick around, black get back. I had to truly begin to decolonize my mind. I had to read, I had to study. I participated in hours long debates at our main spot at SUNY, the campus center. As a woman, I also had to root out internalized patriarchy, as well as to begin to deal with the multiple sexual assaults that I had gone through. When I was five, I was molested. When I was 15, I was raped by an ex-boyfriend. And my first year at SUNY Albany, another attempted rape in a dorm room in which I managed to escape. I had to cleanse my mind, body, and spirit I began to understand through my black psychology class. My professors, like Professor Clark and Professor Owens and Dr. Gordon and Dr. Sutherland, all black women, that there was trauma that was inflicted on me, but there was also trauma inflicted on my people and in my community. By the end of my sophomore year, I ran and became the first Puerto Rican woman president of the Albany State University Black Alliance. That year, I also changed my major from political science to Africana studies. I would then meet these women I just named. It was in that moment that I transitioned from being just another chick around the block from the Bronx and Westchester County. I took any leadership class I could. I joined any organization that would have me. I became involved in anything and everything I could as a student. One of the best moments of my life was meeting my comrade. You know him as Dr. Paul Buckley, and I know him as Paul. And there was this moment when in my junior to senior year, I had been appointed the Director of Multicultural Affairs in student government. And the president 
did not like that I had told a couple organizations they could not be in this multicultural student alliance because they were very strict orthodox religious organizations. And that's not what multiculturalism was as it was defined then. And the president of student government decided to kick me out of my position. And the only way I found out was the next day coming to campus and seeing signs from a Zionist organization claiming victory. We've gotten Rosa Clemente suspended. Let's get her expelled. And it was hundreds of other black, brown, white, Vietnamese, all students, even people who didn't like me, who were like, they can't do that. You were voted into this position. And it was these hours long in the campus center. And all of a sudden I see Paul, and I'm like, oh, okay. And Paul speaks. And if anybody has heard Dr. Buckley speak, he's very commanding. And, he doesn't say a lot, but what he says is really dope and powerful. I won't say what he said, because I don't want to mess it up. <laughs> but I will say that that moment for me made me realize how critically important it was to also be in community and that people can be your family without being your blood family. And Almost 30 years ago, we entered and the same year we graduated and we've had each other's backs. You know, and there are moments where he will just call me and it's the right moment. Every time it's like I'm going through something or something horrible has happened and he's like, talk to me and let's talk this out. And I think that's critically important. And I think community and, and the way we talk about family is important. But being in these positions, right, like without what the university at Albany taught me, I would have never become an organizer, a journalist, a professor, a 2008 vice presidential candidate, or a revolutionary. Because I became fearless. Because what I learned fed my soul. I learned about the invasion of our respected homelands like Puerto Rico, Panama, Jamaica, Somalia, Cuba, the Dominican Republic, Colombia, Hawaii. It was in college that I read Fidel Castro, Harriet Tubman, Ida B. Wells Barnett, Lolita LeBron, Nat Turner. It was in college that I learned about white anti-imperialists like Naomi Jaffe and David Gilbert and Laura Whitehorn, all political prisoners. It was in college that I learned about the Black Panther Party, the Young Lords, the Redneck Underground, the Weather Underground, Students for Democratic Society, the anti-war movement. It was in college that I began to really understand the words of Chuck D and Public Enemy, KRS-One, the welfare poets, Jessica Care Moore, and Dead Prez. The more I learned, the angrier I got. That anger led me to my own personal transformation. Through this personal transformation, I became a critical thinker, a debater, and a challenger to the white supremacist domination of our people. When I became the president of Asuba, a new Rosa was born, and I never looked back. It is critically important that students of color, 
especially in PWIs, predominantly white institutions, are very clear that these institutions never wanted us here. None of these spaces were ever made with us in mind. They weren't made for us, they didn't want us here, but we got here. We didn't get here through our individual SAT score or great essay. Part of why we got here is because of students struggled, because of student protests, because of takeovers at San Francisco State and Cornell University, UMass Amherst, Columbia, and hundreds of colleges and universities between 1965 and 1974. We got here because of brave students who were fighting against the anti, uh, who were fighting against the Vietnam War and were slaughtered at Kent State University. These institutions were forced to not only let us in, but to listen to students who were demanding need-blind admissions, ethnic studies, feminist studies. Feminist studies would not exist without the struggle of mostly African-American, Chicano, and Puerto Rican students. Hundreds of takeovers, protests, sit-ins, demands, shutdowns. The door was not just open, these closed doors we destroyed. Since 1968, 51 years later, we as students of color still have to justify our existence in the ivory tower. People often say microaggressions, and I say, no, they're macroaggressions. Students of color, we are not allowed to just be students. We also have to be the spokespeople for our communities. When you think about privilege, what privilege really is, is what white people don't have to do that we as students of color have to do every day. And even in 2019, Faculty and administrators fail to understand the masks we are forced to wear. So when Trayvon Martin is killed, we carry this with us in the classroom. When Sandra Bland is killed, we carry that with us. When Hurricane Maria hits Puerto Rico, we carry that with us. When because of climate catastrophe, we see the Bahamas wiped off the map, we carry that with us. When we see children in cages, we carry that with us. When we see an ice raid in Mississippi, we carry that into the classroom. When the water is poisoned in Flint, we think about the ability to drink clean water that day. When Standing Rock happens, we carry that with us. When we see Eric Garner saying, I can't breathe. When we see Troy Davis executed, we carry that with us. But we also carry rebellion. So when Ferguson and Baltimore and Charlotte rebel, we rebel with them. Everything is political. Faculty and administrators need to do a much better job of understanding that we as students of color don't have the luxury of just being a student. And students of color have to truly understand the system of white supremacy infects all aspects of our political lives. If you don't, you will always feel like what you're doing is not good enough, as opposed to flipping the script and saying, no matter what we do, 
We still bear the burden of white supremacy, and with all our magic, we still thrive. These institutions of higher learning, not only didn't, they did not want us here, to this day, many of them remain Eurocentric in the policies they enact, the curriculums they write, the classes they allow to be taught. Whether you're an undergrad, a graduate student, or a PhD, we as students of color do not come here for ourselves. Our scholarship that we produce is not just for us, it has to be for the community. As scholar activists, we have the responsibility to use our serious scholarship, empower our communities, but to also understand that our communities are constantly under attack. Many of our brothers and sisters and non-gender conforming people will never step foot in an institution of higher learning but many have organic knowledge through their lived experiences, and that we must never forget, and we cannot allow ourselves to form artificial barriers because we have degrees and most of our people do not. And to be people of African descent, Asian descent, and indigenous descent is to be celebrated, to be uplifted, and that we must always be unapologetic in demanding our rights as human beings on this planet. Don't worry about people's feelings. If people have hurt feelings, that's something they can get over real quick. The problem really never lies with those who suffer the consequences of patriarchy and transphobia and capitalism. We are often the ones that create and innovate solutions. Those of us closer to the problems are closer to the solutions. We are the ones that come up with bold political visions. In order to do this, we must first understand what has happened in the past. Where have we been and how we have resisted? As a historian, what always gives me comfort is knowing that our history does not begin with our colonization, all right? Our history is thousands of years old. We cannot talk about particularly African descendant people from the moment they're colonized to now. We have to look at the past even before that. That before the ugly tentacles of Western capitalism and imperialism reached us, we have a history that predates all of the systemic oppression inflicted upon black and brown people all over the world. What gives me comfort is that we are a global people. We are diasporic. We are part of transnational collective communities and we create movements that are needed to dismantle these systems. How do we do this? First, we have to tell the truth about the American project. The American project begins with the genocide of indigenous people and the taking of their land. It continues with the kidnapping and enslavement of African people, the forced chattel slavery for over 400 years, the purposeful killing and extermination of indigenous peoples, the exploitation of migrant labor, the land grab for Mexicans in the Southwest, the denial of equality for women. Think about it. Not only were most of the founding fathers slaveholders, they did not even include the women they slept with in their constitution that they wrote. They didn't even include the women that they slept with in the constitution that they wrote. 
As a trained historian, I contextualize everything by looking at the past, understanding the present, and knowing that the future is shaped by not only events, but by people who struggle for justice. We were not meant to survive our capture, the Middle Passage, colonialism, imperialism, genocide, apartheid in South Africa, Jim Crow and Juanita Crow, Mexicans were also lynched. People don't talk about that history. Our movements, particularly movements from the early 60s to the mid 80s, did not just die. There was a purposeful destruction of them by a government program called COINTELPRO. When J. Edgar Hoover first saw what he called the communist threats, then the next threat became Dr. Martin Luther King when he spied on him, right? And then the purposeful assassination of Black Panthers and Young Lords and um, the Weather Underground weren't assassinated, but they were forced to go underground because of the actions that they took. So when we talk about this period, we have to understand that they didn't just die, that there was a systemic governmental response. At one point, J. Edgar Hoover said that the biggest internal, internal security threat to the United States of America was the Black Panther Party, and after that, the Puerto Rican Independence Movement. And our generation, the one me and my Sister Jay Love and my brother Paul and many of our comrades grew up. We grew up under Reagan and mass incarceration and the crack epidemic and, and, and gangs being actually incentivized to grow. And now my daughter, Paul's children, Jay Love's sons are now seeing a new wave of incarceration called immigrant detention. We are not meant to survive poverty or the dismantling of public education. And we're certainly not meant to literally survive if we can't get the medical treatment that we need. And now we are in a moment where 45 and the white nationalists and supremacists that he has surrounded himself with but also given cover to really don't want us to survive. The vestiges of colonialism and now settler colonialism is marching at a rate that we are not capable of keeping up with. Anne Braden said, in every age, no matter how cruel the oppression carried on by those in power, there have always been those who struggled for a different world. I believe this is the genius of humankind that makes us half divine. The fact that some human being can envision a world that has never existed. We have to talk about how white people are also affected by the system of white supremacy. Racism, stereotypes can hurt and be violent towards people of color. But I often think of how many young white people sit in a history class in high school and never learn about white revolutionaries in this country. Ask yourself, as a white student who took history, did you learn about the Weather Underground or Laura Whitehorn 
Are white students learning about Jewish Voices for Peace or Grace Lee Boggs? Are white students learning that David Gilbert is a political prisoner because he helped free Assad Shakur? Are white people understanding that someone like Naomi Klein has done so much to bring this idea of the shock doctrine and climate catastrophe in which she sides with black and brown liberation? I think about that. Because when we think about systems, it's not an individual response. So how many white people, especially young white people, feel guilty? The last thing we need is white young people to feel guilty. What we need them to do is know the history of their resistance in this country, to understand that not every white person owns slaves. Right? Like this idea that every white person was a slave, well, that's not true. But the reason I, 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 I want to make that point is because it allows me to understand why white poor people think that Donald Trump is on their side. And all I could think of is we have this saying in hip hop where we say it's about being on the come up. And Trump actually was that person in New York City when we were growing up in the city. He was the guy that would get out of debt and then be at the next party. He was the party where all the rappers wanted to be around him. But what people don't remember about Donald Trump, he's also the man who took out full-page ads in the New York Times and put billboards up all over New York City asking for the execution to be brought back to New York so the Central Park Five could be executed. And to this day, he has never apologized to what he did to be part of the destruction of their lives. But this idea of the come up, right? And that's American capitalism at its, at its worst. See, American capitalism or capitalism will make us think we can get there. We can be the next billionaire. Well, first ask yourself the question, why are there billionaires? And where are they getting their money from? Exploitation of the working people. Why are there 26 billionaires, 26 billionaires in the world have more wealth than 1.5 billion people in the world? How is Jeff Bezos able to accumulate so much wealth that he can be his own country. Think about that. Well, that's what's called being on the come up. The most recent example is Jay-Z selling out to the NFL, right? Jay-Z and Beyonce, of course they're billionaires. So the last three years, no, no, let me say the last five years, it seemed that they were taking on issues of importance of social justice, right? Black Lives Matter, Black Girl Magic, immigrant detention, you know, all of these things, Ferguson, all of this stuff. Jay-Z sat in an office with the NFL heads, all white men, including Robert Kraft, who's a Trump supporter, and Jay-Z said the time to kneel is over. Well, you know when the time we won't stop kneeling? When police stop killing black people. So until police stop killing black people, people are going to do what they have to do to show protest. But really, at the end of the day, he couldn't even get Colin Kaepernick his job back. 
And then he lied about talking to Colin Kaepernick. Well, luckily, Colin Kaepernick and his girlfriend, Nessa, were like, no, he didn't call us. And he should be shamed. He should be shamed. Because the next day, he launched a clothing line based on social justice. And when we were at the restaurant earlier, the opening of the NFL is Meek Mill. Meek Mill, who has become the face of why probation shouldn't be 10 years old, is now siding with billionaires, but also siding with people who have stocks in private prisons. We have to interrogate all that. So when did billionaires become the source of morality in the world? We have to think about that. So this election that has happened and what's going to happen in the next two or a year and a half, the only presidential candidate that is talking about the failures of capitalism, besides the Green Party candidate, Howie Hawkins, is Bernie Sanders. And I know people love Elizabeth Warren, but for, she was a Republican, and she has said that capitalism is a system that's good, right? There cannot be compassionate capitalism. There cannot be social justice capitalism. There is nothing that is good about or redeemable about an economic system that seeks to destroy humanity. Capitalism does not care about you or me. Kwame Ture, formerly Stokely Carmichael, who was a student at Howard Law School, he dropped out his last year of law school to join the burgeoning black power movement and was one of those people that coined the term black power or brought it to the, into light. He said, if a white person wants to lynch me, that's his problem. If he's got the power to lynch me, that's my problem. Racism is not a question of attitude, it's a question of power. Racism gets its power from capitalism. So if you're anti-racist, then you must be anti-capitalist. I know this makes people uncomfortable because in this country, everything we do is often dictated by how much money we can make. Half of this country lives below the poverty line. Capitalism is what is destroying our planet. Capitalism is what is making people sick. Capitalism is what has put students in the highest debt in this country, $1 trillion of student loan debt. Capitalism is what makes people homeless. Capitalism is what dictates what kind of medical care someone will get or whether they will live and die. Capitalism is the problem of the opioid addiction in this country. The family, the Packer family, knew that these were addictive medicines. And they went out through their pharmaceutical company and flooded particularly white communities. I live in Albany. We've done Narcan training, and I carry two of them with me because of the amount of overdoses of young white people happening every day in Albany, New York. Go to Western Massachusetts. I was there when it was killing one 
young white person a day. They've admitted now, and they are being forced to sell their company. But after a 10-year run of hooking particularly young white people to this drug, we have to ask, why? Because capitalism. Why? Because every pill they sold made them money. The state of West Virginia at one point had so many pills that it, they averaged to five per person in West Virginia. Millions and millions of opioid pills were flooded in West Virginia, right? So most families in this country don't have even $500 of savings. And much of the discourse around this says that it's a wealth gap. Well, I say it's a humanity gap that will become more exacerbated in the years to come. Capitalism and colonialism is what keeps Puerto Rico a colony of the United States. Capitalism says we have a debt. Revolution says we don't owe the United States one dollar from Puerto Rico. They've extracted from us for 121 years. We're owed reparations, and we will never pay that debt, and we will not have to pay that debt with how movements are growing. Organizers must understand not just the intersection of capitalism, but how capitalism does dictate often every move we make. Capitalism allows 15 states in this country to spend more on prisons than education. Here in the state of Colorado, the spending per student is $9,574. The spending per incarcerated person is $39,000 a year, a difference of $29,000. And why? Because politicians are in bed with private prisons, and private prisons make more money out of each body that's in their jail. Most of immigrant detention is compromised of a network of private prisons and private contractors. On average, a private immigrant detention center gets $765 per person per day. For every year a person is held in immigrant detention, the private prison receives $279,225 from the government, our taxes. And recently, an internal report from the Attorney General's office said that children currently in this detention, most who are five, six, seven, or eight, may be there until they are 18, and can be deported back to their home country. So we're going to hold five-year-olds for 13 years, release them, and then be like, go back to Guatemala. Yeah, we're going to drop you off. What insanity is that? And what are we doing to stop it? But what it really is is that there's no incentive to move cases forward because the incentive is the money. So if this government can put now tens of thousands of children in cages and separate them from their parents, we have to understand the viciousness, but also the speed at which 45 and his cabinet is moving towards fascism. Everyone who believes in social justice now must step up in ways that they never thought they could. We have to reject any call or understanding to collaborate or sit down with our enemies. We cannot consent 
Our number one priority right now is to become organizers in our local communities. And we have to employ organizing strategies that are not hierarchical, that do not depend on the nonprofit industrial complex. We must go offline and not get caught up in punditry or embrace visible leadership that only has a form on Twitter or Instagram. In the first hours after 45 was elected, elected because half the white women in this country voted against their own bodies and interests to put him in office, Van Jones said that the election of him was a white lash. A white lash against Ferguson, Baltimore, Charlotte, a response to growing movements like Black Lives Matter, Project 350, Dream Defenders, Mi Gente, BYP 100. We need to now look at ourselves, especially us as 35 and over. When did we drop the ball? When did we think invitations to the White House or being on the cover of magazines meant power? We cannot allow a false narrative of who is to blame for Trumpism the blame lies squarely at the feet of a corrupt electoral political system. So as we, as some of you will begin to become active and then hopefully organizers, look and study the history of oppression, yes, but look and study and understand our history of resistance. Our best leaders were never elected to office. Fannie Lou Hamer, Ida B. Wells Barnett, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner True, Nat Turner, Abisu Campos, Osada Shakur, Malcolm X, are political prisoners. As young people in the prime of your life, you are the key to this fight. What will be your role in demanding justice? What does communal interdependence look like? This is not a job for some of us. This is now part of our DNA. The best piece of advice I can often give to all students, for particularly students of color, is what Toni Morrison said. Never see yourself through the white gaze. Never filter yourself because you're scared of what people will think. To the women in this audience and those who identify as women, never stop smashing the patriarchy. So all the LGBTQ, queer, trans people, your queerness is deemed as a threat because you are breaking systems and preconceived notions of who and what you should be. These systems seek to destroy us individually. And now, in 2019, we have to again flip the script and use this as power. When they say in our communities we need more police, you say no, we can secure our own communities. When they tell you that a dreamer is more worthy of citizenship, you say no, all immigrants are worthy. All immigrants deserve humanity and they all deserve amnesty. We cannot do this piecemeal by piecemeal. We either demand amnesty for un all undocumented people or we're gonna be where we're at right now. When they say free college is a pie-in-the-sky dream, you say no, just cut military spending and every young person who wants to go to college can go to college for free. 
In fact, the budget is said to show the conscience of the government. So a, a country that spends trillions of dollars on wars and warships, and as Tupac said, it can't feed the poor, question that. Question everything you have been taught. It won't be easily, especially when many of our parents came to this country for what they thought was a better life. And partly they were right. But look at many of our respective homelands. Understand why there are thousands of Central Americans leaving every day. It's not because one day they got up and said, I want to walk 64 days in a desert as a woman being trafficked or raped. It's because of all the dirty wars in the 80s that the United States participated in to stop what they call the communist threat in Latin America. We have to stand with our brothers and sisters when they say water is life. Literally, water is life. The solutions often don't come from the ballot box. Voting is critically important. Believe me, I know that. I ran, I vote. But what I always remember in that voting booth is that Africans who were enslaved in this hemisphere did not vote to be free. They organized and resisted to get free. So where do we go at this moment? Well, we are clear, and this is because of young people and movements like the Sunrise Movement, that climate change is the catastrophe that cuts through every intersection. Your generation either saves the planet or the life as we know it no longer will exist. We have to link with others in this world in solidarity. From Palestine to Puerto Rico, we must be internationalists. But we have to be willing to sacrifice. We have to say it, mean it, and organize. As Kwame Ture said, the job of the conscious is to make the unconscious know that they're unconscious. I truly believe that the state and its actors want us to march to our deaths willingly and peacefully. And we will not do that. We must resist at every point. We have to say we don't consent. At the current moment, there are now over 1,000 hate groups that are active in the United States. The surge of hate crimes has risen 40% since 2015. That it is mostly young white men who are responsible for all the mass shootings, but 45 in this cabinet are not innocent. It is my belief that these domestic terrorists are operating as decentralized cells, and every time 45 says something, they respond with murderous attacks. When he says there's a national emergency, we have to say the national emergency is homelessness, the lack of affordable housing, everybody not having health care. We have to be unequivocal as women and resist the assault on our reproductive rights. 2019, we can say, and it's not hyperbole, that there is a megalomaniac in this office. But the mainstream media is not innocent either. After two and a half years, the pundit media elite class is still asking the question, is he racist? Well, shame on them. They are part of the reason he is the president. When he began to ascend, Jeffrey Zuckerberger, who runs CNN, said they would keep covering him because the ratings were more important. And this is where we are. From Charlottesville to El Paso, 29 plots of mass racial killings that were stopped in the last month by the FBI. 
If we are not clear that the dragon of white supremacy is on its last breath, we only need to see what they continue to do. This new historical era we are in compels me not to waste any more time. I won't spend my time debating whether the predator-in-chief is a racist. I won't allow those that voted for him to justify why and say they are not racist. And there are people in my family that I no longer talk to because they voted for him. There are Latino and black people that voted for Trump. If you are down in any form or fashion with him, not only are you complicit, you are racist. And when the history is told about this battle this time, your children, grandchildren, the children in your lives will ask you, what did you do? Don't be the person who watched it and didn't fight back. Hip-hop artist Talib Kweli in his song Get By says, even when the condition is critical, the living is miserable, your position is pivotal, I ain't bullshitting you. So as I close out what I thought would be a quiet summer in my life, ended up being a summer of extreme sadness and extreme joy. When I went to the border of El Paso and went into Juarez with a group that Eve Ensler, the founder of V-Day, brought down there for four days, the joy of the artists being in front of that detention center was an incredible moment. The sadness the next day of going into a detention center and seeing mothers have to use paper to make diapers for their babies. To see children that were sitting out in the sun and were sun poisoned and were sick. To see the Customs and Border Patrol, most of them Latino, egging on dogs to bark incessantly so the people in those detention centers never got sleep. To be in a shelter in Waters and have to see a young woman hiding in a closet and the shelter protecting her because the cartel was five feet away saying any woman that left the shelter would be trafficked. To go to the shelter and see five young Afro-Nicaraguan men who met each other after 67 days asking for help in the shelter. Shelters don't help and do not let in young men. They sleep on the streets. Around the corner, the cartel is there to give them jobs. To speak to a family that went to their po a police station, and the police said, get out. You need to leave the community in Guatemala. And the next day, seven of the police officers that were helping people escape those conditions were hung up and put out for the town to see them because the cartel wanted people to know there's nothing you could do to get out. You join the cartel, you're murdered. That's what I saw in four days. And then 14 days later, I'm in Puerto Rico because the resistance struggle to get the governor out. And as a Puerto Rican who finally found out who I was and know my history, to be with my people, it's some, and to see the resistance is something I literally prayed and, and hoped the entire time I was conscious. And what was the best part of Puerto Rico 
was that every day, in every part of Puerto Rico, the people were shutting down the government. The incredible part of the resistance in Puerto Rico is that there was no one leader, politicians didn't get to speak on the mic, that everybody who came, came for one goal, to make Ricky Rosselló resign. And every day they renamed all the streets. Calle de la Fortaleza became Calle de Resistance. This street became the collective feminist street. To see people from five years old to 80 years old, old school independistas to young kids, to young people that at 11 o'clock would ask the elders to go home because they were more anarchist minded and were ready to go toe to toe with the cops was something I had never experienced. But we won, we won that battle, we got him out. And then the second guy, we got him out. And now we're gonna get Wanda Vasquez out too. And people keep saying, what happens? How does, a, how does a government function? Well, what's happening in Puerto Rico right now, not only people's assemblies, the people are rewriting the constitution of Puerto Rico and are gonna demand that that constitution be implemented. Now people say that might be crazy, that might not happen, but I'll tell you this, a year and a half ago, we had a lot of people that didn't want Puerto Rico to be free. And now the majority of Puerto Ricans want a free and independent Puerto Rico. And this movement was led by feminists, by trans kids, queer kids, Antifa-minded, anarchist-minded. And yes, was property destroyed? Of course it was. But when property becomes more important than human life, like what are you really arguing about? We won that. And we will win. So we do win but sometimes we lose. But we have to keep resisting. People often ask me about self-care. I actually do not like that term. I don't like how self-care implies individuality as opposed to community. And I don't like that self-care is framed within a capitalistic framework. For me, actually, the idea of self-care is selfish. Ida B. and Assad and Lolita were not taking breaks against the system. For me, the movement is self-care. I believe that now we need more good people than bad. I have the ultimate faith in the power of the people. So I do believe that we will win. I also know we may take many more losses. But as a revolutionary, my faith has never lied in an institution, a building, a grant, a job, a PhD, my faith has always lied in the people, in people power. There are people all over this country in rural communities and urban communities, incarcerated, working three jobs, who are committed to striking a hammer to the system of white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism every day. Every day we can do something to stop the madness of toxic manhood, hyper-capitalism, and a country bent on always being in a war. This is not a trend, it's not a Snapchat, a button, a hashtag, or a phrase. With every tool I have acquired on my journey, with every fight I gain more momentum, with everything I have, I will fight until my last breath and go on on my feet. I end with the powerful words of Frederick Douglass. If there's no struggle, there's no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men and women who want crops without plowing up the ground. 
They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one, it may be a physical one, or it may be both moral and physical, but it must always be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Balante siempre balante. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks again for having me. I think we can take some Q&A, right? Okay, Vanessa has the microphone. Questions? Over here. Okay, wow. Um, so obviously what's going on um, at the border right now is really disturbing. Um, and so many people around me who are my age um, are deeply disturbed by it. But I also hear so many people saying, I don't know what to do about it. Um, and as you said, I hear people say, when I'm older, I don't want to be asked about this. And, or at least to feel as though I did nothing when there was something to be done. So what is something which people, sort of students like, us here, what can we do um, to sort of counteract what's going on at the border with ICE um, and child detention and things like that? Wait, say that last part? Um, so what, what is really in the power for college students today who are on campus? Um, how can we um, help like, improve conditions at ICE or banish it altogether? Well, I mean, look, what I always say is that colleges and universities are institutions like this are very good at also like struggling, right? Because you should be in classes where you're being challenged and you should be around people that don't necessarily look like you, are like you, right? And, and be challenged in that. For me, it's what um, Bell Hook says, education is supposed to be transformative, right? Now, when I do teach, um, when I'm in a classroom, I, the first thing I always tell my students is I'm trying to make you organizers. And they're like, that's political. And I'm like, everything's political, right? You can be in the class or you don't have to be in the class. But um, that's what my goal is as a professor, um, is to make every student want to be engaged in the work of social justice and racial justice, economic justice. You know, and, and really, like, any one of us that's in higher education, especially as an undergrad, right? You know, what I used to think about is like, wow, I get to eat three meals a day and I'm on a campus and I get to like chop it up for four hours and just debate. Most people don't have that luxury, <laughs> like, right? Most people are working people, two, three jobs to survive. Like, teachers have to work a second job in this country, public school teachers. So just even having time is a luxury, but it shouldn't be wasted especially in the era that we're in now, you know? So I always think it's important for any student to find out what they're passionate about. You don't have to be passionate about every issue. There's a lot out there. You've got to be passionate about something. If not, why did you come to college? To get a job or to be transformed, right? 
And your generation is also not going to be people who work at one place for 25 years. Those jobs are over. I mean, the amount of automation that's taking place right now, right, you go, now I can, if I go to Target, they have one cashier at the register and 25 self-checkouts. Okay, it makes it more convenient. You're like, I could do this faster. Then I think how many people just lost their job this week? You know, or I've been on some campuses where students have um, been on strike against Walmart, and I think that's good. The flip side of that is that Walmart is the largest employer of African Americans in this country, right? So, like when we were doing these Walmart campaigns, it was like black employees, like, yo, dude, you're gonna get us fired. My righteousness was like, it's Walmart. And then I was like, oh my God, this is the number one employer of African Americans and single women, right? I'm not saying that we have to shop at Walmart. All I'm saying is where this country is going, the manufacturing jobs are not coming back. We know that wasn't ever happening. The amount of automation taking place, your generation is going to have to be very multifaceted in how you sustain yourself, right? And I think actually that is an exciting opportunity in time where you don't have to be wedded to a desk or some nine to five thing, right? And the way we can survive in the system of capitalism is by being part of cooperative economics. You look all over this country, there are workers' co-ops that are growing and growing. And one of them that you should take a look at is um, Cooperation Jackson in Jackson, Mississippi. These are some of my comrades um, in Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, an organization that I grew up with politically. And they have purchased so much land um, of abandoned buildings. They're opening a 3D, printing, a 3D printing warehouse. They have the community garden. Where I live in Albany, there's an incredible farm in Troy called Soulfire Farm. If you haven't read Farming While Black, please read that. But this farm has really transformed my daughter's life because we're so close to it. And what Leah and Jonah have done, they've had this farm now for 10 years. It's one of the few black-owned farms on the Northeast. Her sister has another farm called Wild Sea and another part in New York. But um, Soulfire Farm now feeds 1,000 people every summer with free vegetables and fruits from what they're harvesting on the land. And they're still able to employ people on the land and do so much stuff. And so I think you should, in the bigger picture was what I'm saying is that you have to look at things outside the capitalistic framework, right? And what are these cooperative economics? What does it mean for us to barter on our own, you know? And I've done that in my personal life currently. Like, oh, I, I'll call somebody and be like, I need a flyer. Okay, and you need me to consult with you for 45 minutes about something you're doing. So I encourage people to do that. And college should be the time where you really get to know who you are outside of any familiar ties, right? Because parents will often, when we begin to push, they push back harder. But you have to become your own person in that sense, away from your parents or whoever raised you. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. So I, I first wanted to say that I absolutely adored your talk tonight. I thought that was very inspiring. And it was a very sobering uh, 
monologue for you to talk about all of these sorts of things that are happening, not just in the United States, but on the global scale, and how those intersects with um, our daily lives. So, um, so for my question, I was wondering, uh, what do you think is the greatest existential threat to the overall nature of progress and the nature of our way of thinking about social and political progress um, as of this uh, decade and this coming decade? I mean, for me, it is climate catastrophe. Because the more these catastrophes happen, what we're going to see, we're already seeing is climate refugees. Right? Um, and look, this has not been something that I was always in tune with, straight up. Right? I, it's not that I didn't know. I'm from the Green Party. I didn't, of course I knew people that were sounding the alarm. But it wasn't until I covered Hurricane Katrina and saw for myself New Orleans and dead bodies floating in the 9th Ward um, that I began to even think about. Now mind you, 2000, that's almost 14 years ago. It's really been after Hurricane Maria, right? And that's what often happens. Like, we'll be like, oh, well, no, it's a threat, and then it happens to us viscerally. And for me, it was going to Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, even though I've been um, more and more reading, getting as much information, um, finding out information from like climate um, justice leaders like Elizabeth Yampierre with this great organization in Brooklyn called Uprose. And I began to see what a just transition looks like and the leadership of young black and brown folks. Because see, for a long time, the image that we got around environmentalism was that real like white, Sierra Club type of thing, and polar bears, right? Now, it is important about the polar bears because we know that the ice caps are melting and they're like, they ain't got no place to go. But I think that happens, and as, um, let me say, as organizers, what I try not to do is become stagnant, right? And I try not to be like, oh, I know all of that and I've been down with all of that. Actually, I wasn't until recently. And most of it really was my daughter and her being in a school where every day she's like, the existential threat is the climate catastrophe and you're not paying attention to it. <laughs> you know? She's like, you have to recycle more and stop doing that and it's mom, don't do it. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know? um, so I do believe, yes, that's the existential threat. It cuts through every intersection because like, the water's flooding aren't going to be like, oh, wait, you're a woman, you're a man, we're going to flood women more. No. And what just happened in the Bahamas, like, I'm kind of still in shock to see the images from the Bahamas, to be honest. And I shouldn't because I do understand the power of water as an element, but I know people right now, Bahamian people, that haven't think that their entire family has been swept away. You know, so I do believe it's an existential threat. I don't believe most politicians are taking it as seriously. I am thrilled that AOC, you know, is putting out this Green New Deal. Unfortunately, I don't see the government doing much about it, but I see young people demanding it. So I'm very curious to see what happens September 20th with the youth strike in this country. My, I'm talking to my daughter out of school and going to New York City so she could join with other young people. 
So I do believe that's a threat. Now, with black and brown communities, that's a threat, of course. And then the threats that we have always faced, police brutality, lack of em employment, mass incarceration, immigrant detention, these are all happening. They happen at the same time. It's not like one thing happens and then the next thing happens. So I think we have to become um, better at explaining in our communities like why we should be very much paying attention to what is happening right now as it regards climate because the last two years has been storms that are only supposed to happen every hundred years. They're happening like every summer now. You know, so I, I think that is the existential threat. I hadn't been there before, but after Hurricane Maria, I'm there now. I get it, I saw it. You know, we lost over 3,000 people in Puerto Rico. The government wants to lie about that and keep those numbers down. But the report from Harvard, the new update, is now updating it to 5,500 people. Most of those people did not die with the impact of the hurricane. They died because of the neglect of the federal government and also some government corrupt parts in Puerto Rico. Um, but we're going to see these mass dyings happening more and more because of this. So, yeah. We might have time for one more question. Well, there's two more. We could, I, I, I see you. But there, and over here. I see sister, yeah, here. Okay. And then there's one more there. Okay. Make sure you get it. Thank you for being here, first of all, and uh, thank you for acknowledging the life of uh, Devon Bailey. Um, I, I just had a question. Um, I wondered your opinion on, so Trump has a very explicit way of getting out his message, um, but as you spoke to throughout your entire speech, um, our history is based off of um, capitalizing off of black and brown bodies um, to serve our economy. And um, I wonder if you think American people will respond to this moment as sort of a blip in our system, someone who was just extremely explicit and violent and blatant in nature, um, and sort of um, no longer be mobile once we sort of go back to the status quo and politicians who use dog whistle politics as opposed to blatant messaging. Um, I wonder if you think that people will remain mobilized beyond this moment? Well, I, I think what you're saying is very critical to understanding where we're at at this moment. Um, so first, we actually are not fighting back in any way, the way we should be. I mean, after coming from Puerto Rico, seeing what's going on in Palestine, Brazil, other places all over the world, we are like not doing nothing. Like marching in Washington, D.C. and the police leading you and you having a permit, like that's not doing anything against power, right? Like, I call those like show mobilizations, right? Which is why I tend not to attend any of that stuff anymore. Because I'm like, it's a show. People are dying and this is a show. For people who have money to take off work that day and get on a stage and say some really beautiful things. Um, I think you're right on when you say, will people, will some people view it as a blip in history? I do think that. Because when we look at all the current presidential candidates, they might not like Trump. We understand that, and we understand why, okay. 
but they still like the American political system. They still like the two-party system. They still really aren't fighting to get Citizens United overturned. They're not trying to get rid of the Electoral College. And the way we're really seeing this play out in real time is the way the Democratic Party is treating AOC, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, and Ilhan Omar. And what do I mean by this? The Democratic Party is running a candidate against AOC. They're going to try to primary her out. The Democratic Party. Because look at who's running it. They stole the nomination from Bernie last time. Everybody knows that. Now they're forcing Joe Biden on everybody. So they do think it's a blip because they actually believe in the American political system. They don't want any of that to change because then they don't have power. Now, do I think a Julian Castro and um, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, for me, if I were to say who are the t that for me would be the top three, right? Like Kamala Harris spent her whole life putting black people in jail. Like, you know, people are trying to hear that from her in Cali, all the things she has done as a prosecutor, literally against black people. Like Kamala Harris prosecuted the parents of students that were truant, okay? So yes, I think exactly what you say. Unless we have certain historians and political people writing the history right now. And we see a lot of good things happening. Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is racist. Jason Stanley's book on how fascism is here now and nobody's seeing them. Naomi Klein's new book that's coming out Tuesday on the climate catastrophe. These to me are political thought leaders and we have to now understand that it's not just a blip of him being the president. What I really see Trump is like the ring named Bar Barnum and Bailey, like he's the show master, right? But look at what his cabinet does every day that they're not reporting on. Betsy DeVos is destroying public education. She's also gutting Title IX in colleges. She's saying that rapists have more rights than those that they're accused of rapists. Ben Carson last month sent out a letter to people receiving Section 8 that if they have undocumented people living with them, they're going to be kicked out. Stephen Miller is like the grand wizard of all of it with immigration. So Trump is like the little, like the crazy sideshow. That's what he is. And unfortunately, the mainstream media keeps playing into it. A lot of us focus. Now, I know I named him a lot, because uh, I think it's important. But I do fear that that would happen. Now, what should happen, which I would hope, is that people would rise up and say this two-party system ain't working. The Electoral College was for slave owners to be able to keep their slaves in power. We need to overturn all of that. But that takes an amount of sacrifice and mass organizing. Can we do it? Hell yeah. What is keeping us often from doing it is that particularly young people have not been encouraged to be organizers or learn how to be a leader or learn to speak truth to power. Because your generation of young people, no matter what school you were in, unless you were in a very social justice 
orientated school are the test generation, where all you got was information, information, put on a test, don't critically think, just do what the professor teacher tells you. And then three months later, you're a fresh person, and the professor's like, why aren't you talking? And you're like, because for four years, my teacher told me not to say anything. And I, I, I do, I talk to professors a lot, like, you cannot expect someone graduating from high school in June to then go to college in September and all of a sudden be a critical thinker. For the last 10 years of their life, they were told not to critically think, that the only answer that mattered was the one going on the test. So yes, I think you are correct when you say many people will analyze this as a blip, like a, a, a hiccup. We're gonna need people especially your generation, to say this has opened up our eyes to see what a possible new world could look like. And that's why it is critically important that you as students find out, question everything, interrogate everything, and become the kind of intellectualism that we need so that we can fight this not only here, but on a global scale. I know there's that last question. Um, I'd also like to say thank you for being here tonight and speaking with us. Um, and my question actually kind of speaks to your last answer, but my question, or I would like to hear your thoughts on radical change versus liberal reform. And in this moment of crisis and this existential threat, can the two exist in sort of a symbiosis? Or are they mutually exclusive? Well, that's a great question, too. Um, so I don't do anything around reform anymore. Like, I don't think prisons can be better. Immigration detention centers could be nicer if you put up yellow paper and stuff. No. Um, I'm not a reformist. I'm an abolitionist. So when we say abolish ICE, we mean abolish ICE. When we say abolish the police, we mean that. Um, now, can they exist at the same time? Well, I, I still think the reformers are winning. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think the abolitionists, we're, we're definitely winning the moral argument, but are we winning the policy in, in being enacted? No. And I think it goes to your questions, this, the, the, the current American political system, right? So as AOC, and I also say view this through these four women. And actually, I'll drop Ayanna Presley. She's a little bit more reformist. Let me just really say Rashida, Ilhan, and Alejandria. They're three now. See, they ran, and young people and people in general were like, yes, finally, the truth. Running, being in office, and then governing are three whole different things. Now they're three out of 435, right? I can see the frustration that I watch them all the time on C-SPAN. But let me tell you something. AOC, Rashida, Ilhan, and Katie Porter from California, um, a white woman who is a law professor, they eviscerate everyone in these congressional hearings. Like, I think they're so much fun to watch because they literally destroy everybody in the argument. Yes, but they can't get any policy passed. Because, it's a, it's, yeah, it's a Republican Senate problem, but again, their own party. Nancy Pelosi and them want things to be reformed, right? 
to the point where apparently Republicans are the reason now that we're reforming criminal justice. You're like, when did Donald Trump's son become like the god for criminal justice reform? But what it really is is that they take these little individual stories and like, oh my god, he was in jail for 20 years or she was in jail for 25. That is very true. But there are literally hundreds of thousands of people in jail for the same thing for years or their lives. So this reform makes it look, or Van Jones and them will be like, we won. Who did you win? There's 2.4 million people in jail. I think most of those people should be out, all right? Most of us will say most of those folks should be out. So you getting 10 people released, what does that mean for 2.1 million other people? And what you're saying also hits home for me because my husband's formerly incarcerated, and he's come to a lot of events with me. And he always is like, they're all talking about criminal justice and none of them ever been in jail. Why aren't we the ones talking on the stage? So I was like, yeah, but he's not that person now. He's questioning that. And he goes, why does everybody think that all we want as formerly incarcerated people is to vote? He literally was like, I don't give two Fs about voting. I'll do it because you're telling me to do it. But he's like, my main issue when I got out was finding a job. So I'm like, right, we, inter we enact these huge conferences and three-day convenings about reforming this, reforming that, about high visibility. Now we're seeing like more activists organizing black people, like I said, on covers of magazines and movies and TV shows. What does that really mean for the majority of the people that are suffering from those policies? Now, do I think that shouldn't happen? No. At this point, I'm like, we got to all go in. Like, do what you got to do. Everybody get cracking on something. So I'm always happy to see people saying, we have to change this. But I think we do have to get to where people were in the late 1800s. We can't make slavery better. We have to be abolitionists. Right? And that's what happened. And the abolitionist movement, which has been framed mostly around like white people that became abolitionists, no, black people were abolitionists. There were black people who were buying their way out of freedom and then joining abolitionist causes. So are we on the reform? Yes. Can they exist in the same space? Yes. But I think that we should now be about abolishing these systems of oppression. You cannot make systems of oppression better. What does it look like, again, to envision a new world? What does it look like when people rise up and say, not in our name? What does it look like when citizens say, yo, this $1 trillion for 18 years in Afghanistan and all of this and what's happening in Syria, like, we need to stop being at war all the time and not just take care of people here, but just that warmongering in general, because it destroys most of the world. So I think what both you said also comes together. So with that, I say I'm an abolitionist. Will I win every time? Maybe not, but we do win. And when you win, let me tell you something as students, for those of you who are gonna be organizers, like I said, you'll take a lot of losses. I'll tell you that. I mean, I know, me and Jay had known each other for 20 years, Jay Love. 
And we've been to a lot of things where we didn't win. But man, when we do win, or like we see a Ferguson rebelling, then we see a Charlotte rebelling, or when we go to Charlotte and Charlotte's rebelling, and then showing up for racial justice people, all white people are like, no, no, we got this, we're the front lines. We got y'all, black and brown folks, not as uh, condescending, more as like, we as white people are literally putting our bodies in between that. See, that happened in Charlottesville and that wasn't reported. What wasn't reported in Charlottesville is Antifa showed up and put their bodies on the line because there were white nationalists with brass knuckles that were about to attack the minister, the reverend, the rabbi, and all the religious um, people. And what people didn't see is when Antifa stepped up and took some of those blows because these nationalists were trying to kill the rabbi. I can't remember this brother, he's a rabbi, but also one of my friends who's a, who's a reverend, Sekou, and also Dr. Cornell West. You see what I'm saying? That wasn't shown on TV. So when I see those, I be like, I'm like, that's a winning strategy. When I see white people not feeling guilty about their privilege and being like, yo, I'm gonna join the struggle, I'm not gonna be condescending, I'm ready to put my body on the line for black and brown liberation, that's a win. Well, we say people who are involved in movement for black lives and black lives matter and all that, what they say is when black people are free, we'll all be free. And that's what I fight for. When black people are free, we will all be free. Thank you for your questions. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>